I'm Dr. Brent Schillinger, along with Abby Strauss. Today, we're going to be speaking with Sean Fogler. Dr. Sean Fogler is a physician. He's in long-term recovery. He's a certified recovery specialist. Fogler is a graduate of Ross University School of Medicine, and he completed an internship in internal medicine and a residency in anesthesiology at Hanneman University Hospital in Philadelphia. He is also the co-founder of a group called Elevist, which stands for Elevate and Catalyst together. It's a help organization to further community and public health initiatives. So welcome, Sean. You're a fairly young guy, just a tad over 50. At this point, you're not actually practicing medicine or licensed to practice medicine. And this relates to some drug-related activities in your past. Could you just speak to that for a moment? That's a very long story, but I'll <laughs> try and condense it. I went to medical school. I'm originally from Canada, actually from Toronto. I came to the U.S. in the mid-90s. When I finished medical school, instead of going right into residency training, I went and worked in New York in finance. That put me next to the World Trade Center during the 9-11 attacks. It really kind of unbeknownst to me at the time, I developed pretty significant PTSD and I didn't manage it. I think like a lot of people with substance use disorders, we hide and we don't deal with our issues and we kind of sweep them under the rug and we feel if we move fast enough, do enough, to throw ourselves into enough things that we'll be okay. And bit by bit, I realized I wasn't okay, but I never really felt that it was safe to kind of talk to people about my underlying issues. And eventually after that, I went and I came to Philadelphia and I completed my internship and residency, worked really hard, kind of threw myself into things. And bit by bit, things became unraveled. I became a little bit depressed and anxious. And that's really when I started using substances to medicate myself. And at first it was pretty occasional here and there, but the drug actually helped me. It allowed me to function, but it also allowed me to hide and not really face my issues. And slowly, bit by bit, things became unraveled. And I would say in the last couple of years, around 2013, 2014, my substance use escalated pretty significantly. And that's when bad things began to happen. And I ended up writing a few prescriptions for an individual and ultimately having legal issues. The interesting thing is, is that I got into recovery in about 2015 when things got really bad. I spent about four months in treatment, kind of came back to Philadelphia, threw myself into recovery, started working again. And because of my experience, I decided that I wanted to do a fellowship in addiction medicine. Then I got the fellowship. This was at Karen. And I started the fellowship. And a month into the fellowship, I was arrested for those prescriptions that I had written a few years before. And that kind of dragged out for a couple of years. And eventually my license was suspended. And then I was convicted of a drug charge. And then I was kind of looking for something. How can I give back? How can I do the things that I'm passionate about? And I got into public health work and harm reduction. And interestingly, I train a lot of law enforcement today and healthcare professionals on substance use disorders and strategies around better managing, engaging with this population and better managing the disease. So that's a really short version of a very long story. And, and, and good for you. I'm sorry it happened, but good for you because you came out good on the other side of this, even though I'm sure it was quite the odyssey. As you were talking about being in New York when the towers came down and PTSD, one of the things that we struggle with is what is the origin of a substance abuse problem? How much is it biological? How much is it psychological? 
The spinoff of that obviously is why is AA so powerful and it's all psychological and NA as well. There are two pieces of the question. Number one, the number of soldiers during the Vietnam War and anywhere who come back with PTSD, who had no substance abuse problems, at least that we know of, before they were in the service, was it the PTSD that triggered it? And so that blends to you. What do you think the trigger was? The tower is a horrible thing. I mean, lots of people just didn't know what to do with it. What was the inside story to you? Right. I mean, that's a great question. I think there was definitely a genetic component. And it's kind of interesting because I didn't know growing up my biological father. He actually passed away about a year ago. And what I didn't know at the time and what I found out from that extended family is that he struggled with substance use disorder. So I think there was a genetic component. I also think my home environment as a child was pretty challenging. When I look back from a very young age, I think I learned to manage my emotions in not the healthiest of ways. I think I would dissociate and avoid um, and kind of bury my feelings because of my home environment. That was protective when I was a young kid, but as you get older, those aren't healthy ways to cope. And so I think a little bit of genetics coupled with poor coping skills from a young age. And obviously I was, I guess, smart enough and savvy enough to kind of bob and weave and become successful. And in some ways success allows you, and I think this is true for a lot of physicians, to hide it. You're doing well financially, you get respect from the community. Sometimes I look back and I wish that I wasn't able to hide it. I I wish that maybe I wasn't doing so well or things fell apart at a much earlier age or people could see it. But I think a lot of us as physicians are able to kind of put the mask on and that's like, it helps us function and cope in some ways, but really it allows those problems to grow and become far more dangerous with a lot of us in the medical community. I think that also speaks to the culture of silence. I think in medicine and our healthcare systems, we have this, this culture of silence when it comes to mental health issues and substance use disorders. And we think we're safer that way. And we're not. We're not at all. It's the total opposite. I think like one of the solutions to this, and I'm probably jumping way ahead, we need to create safe spaces and a culture of support where you're not in fear of losing your license or your job or being shamed or stigmatized if you make a a mistake or, or if you struggle with depression or anxiety or you're drinking too much. And that's probably more important today than ever, the current pandemic. Which brings us to the whole topic of stigma online journal stat, you say, I've seen the damage caused by the stigma of addiction. It must end. Can you elaborate on that? There's many amazing healthcare professionals and organizations working hard to treat people with substance use disorders, doing amazing work all over the country. But the vast majority of the system is really rooted in in that stigma, in that kind of archaic ideology that I guess This goes back many, many years, but we can trace it back to Nixon and the beginning of the drug war. And we've taken those ideas and beliefs and they're baked into our system. We know healthcare professionals, the way they engage with, the way they talk to, the way they treat individuals with substance use disorders are not very good. And we don't have a ton of research, but the research we do have pretty much shows that we don't do much better than the rest of the public. And we really should, right? There's even been studies that show that the longer people are in training and the more they work, 
as physicians or nurses, the stigma and the attitudes get worse. And I kind of think it's a combination of things. I think there is the drug war ideology and the public stigma that our structures and systems have taken in. And I think those two things coupled with the self-stigma, because people that struggle with disease, and I know this well, we like shame ourselves. We're, we're harder on ourselves than anybody else possibly could be. Take somebody like that who's vulnerable, who's already shaming themselves, and then the system and our laws continue to double down on that. How are you really supposed to recover? How are you supposed to move forward? Did you have to reach a point where you were no longer, and I'm, I, this is my word, not necessarily yours, when you were no longer embarrassed that you weren't perfect, that you maybe had a deficit, that you were weak, you were emotional, and the whole list of adjectives attached to that, because one of our struggles here in, is that initial step that people have when they go to AA. They stand up, they take a deep breath, and they say, I'm an alcoholic, I'm out of control, I need help. And I applaud them when they do this. What was your epiphany? In 2015, I was standing in my kitchen and my wife was holding my son, who was, geez, probably two, and looked at me and said, I don't know who you are anymore. And I replied, what are you talking about? Something went off in my head and I was like, finally realized I have absolutely no insight into myself and my behavior. I can't even recognize myself. The people around me are looking at me and realizing this isn't Sean, like this, this is not you. And I'm not even aware of it. And that was kind of the trigger that got me to go to treatment. And when I went to treatment, maybe things were bad enough or, or I don't know what it was, but I was like, somebody tell me how to live because I clearly don't know how to do it. I don't know what I'm doing and bad things are happening. And honestly, I, I listened. I listened. And for a long time, what I did was when I engaged with the world, if I felt like doing X, I would do the opposite. If I felt like doing Y, I, I would go the other way. And, and I believe addiction is a brain disease, but I also believe it's a learning disorder too. And I think like the way we cope with things and interact with the world and, and our responses and how we manage ourselves, I think part of it was retraining myself. But I had to get to a point where I was willing to listen and accept that I was out of control and I really was powerless over the things that I was doing and the way I was behaving. And I couldn't trust myself is what it really came down to. I think that started in childhood, not listening to myself and kind of walling myself off. But I think part of it was trusting myself, believing myself in my own instincts. But that took a long time. As much as there was a point like where there was a shift, this is like a process that continues to go on today think that's what recovery is, right? It's a process of change and it's kind of like a never ending twisting and turning road. And, and often what works today doesn't work tomorrow, which is why I think it's such a challenging disease to manage because there is no cookie cutter approach. I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> you actually did because this is, I think, my opinion, my perspective, especially for physicians. We're going to talk about physicians more so than others. They have the sense they can do anything. There's an arrogance. Don't tell me I'm not right. I was the kid who got all A's in high school, all A's in, in college. And then when I went to medical school, oh my God, 
I started getting B's and C's. I've never been around such smart people before. And it erodes on their ego structure for life. That's what I found that I read about what you had done and what you're now saying is we want to avoid as much as we can. And there are a multitude of reasons for it. But the statistics are roughly 400 physicians a year commit suicide. Not all from substance abuse, obviously. Do we need to train them differently? Should there be a different screening thing when they go into a residency? One of the things that when I was in training in both master's in psychiatric social work and psychiatry, we were mandated to go into therapy. There wasn't an option. <laughs> if you said no, the chairman of the department would call you and say, tell me, tell me why, why you, this doesn't apply to you. It was some of the best stuff I ever had in my life. Do you think that that sort of thing is mandatory? Is it feasible? I just, I love your ideas because you've been there, you've done it, you've seen both sides of the table and what you're doing now is great. I think everything you said is, is right on the money. Like we have this culture of exceptionalism. We think we're special. We think we're immune. We think the rules don't apply to us. We can do anything. And that's just not the case. Like we're human and I agree with you. I do think we need to invest in the mental health of the people that are caring for our communities. Part of that is providing that kind of support and treatment. And I've been in therapy on and off for, I don't know, many years now. Best thing I ever did. I wish I had started it at a much younger age. I wish I was doing it more consistently when I was in training. I do think that that's a big part of it. I know a lot of health systems now are talking about wellness and have these mindfulness programs. But what I hear from many of my colleagues is that they don't have time to actually do it. We need to carve out space. We need to carve out time. We need to create safe spaces. And I do believe that does need to be mandated for healthcare professionals because the alternative is doing nothing and continuing to maintain the culture of silence where we don't talk about these things or we put band-aids on things and pretend they're fine. They're not. <laughs> they're not. And today more than ever, right? A lot of those time constraints date back to medical school education. You know, we've spoken to various local schools about incorporating more ethical discussions, more education on addiction. I think addiction, some of the schools did 30 minutes over four years of teaching. And ethics now, not even in the curriculum in a lot of schools because they just have too many other things. What advice would you like to share? Let's, let's look at some of the things that you went through. You're talking about how you were self-medicating. What can physicians do to kind of catch themselves at an early stage to reorient themselves to not proceed on the track that you followed? I think what I had just said about changing the culture is like the ultimate solution. Finding somebody you can reach out to, finding a support group, finding a therapist. There are great groups. You know, I had never done group therapy until I got into treatment. And then when I was in the Pennsylvania Physicians Health Program for two years, we had to go to a group. Group is phenomenal. I actually in some ways think it's better than individual therapy because you need to develop a relationship with the people around you and they call you out on your, you know, lack of a better word, BS. And they see, you know, they see you, they give you this interesting perspective. And I think finding a great group and there's many, and especially now with COVID, there's so many great online communities. I'm not promoting anything specifically, but I'm working with an organization here in Philadelphia to create a clinician's group. It's going to start soon online. I think that's helpful. I used to think when I first got into recovery, 
It's interesting. I didn't want to actually go to a physician or a healthcare professional group because I didn't want to consider myself special, really kind of stayed away from it. But I think as I got further on into recovery, I think having some kind of connection with the professional healthcare community, we're talking about physicians and having a group like that is important to like, there's a fine line because kind of an exclusive group like that can fuel that like ego and exceptionalism and we're special, which I find really problematic. On the other hand, there's a lot of unique experiences and challenges for physicians that they go through that having a safe space with your colleagues is good. But I think a lot of recovery should kind of be away from that. I think you need that piece, but I think you also need to interact with everybody else. My sponsor is not a physician. AA is kind of my pathway. Did I answer your question? (laughs) There's a lot there. Pretty much. I think there's some great suggestions that you're putting out there, but to take it a step, one step above that, what do we do to push our colleagues who need to seek help, but again, are thinking like you're saying, you know, oh, I'm beyond that. Oh, I can handle this. I don't have a problem. People who are listening to this podcast, what what kind of tips might you have? Yeah. The first thing I would say is it's very difficult to push someone into treatment if they don't want to go. You have to create an environment of, hey, I'm here. We're here. This is available. I love you. I support you. I think that's where it starts. And that may seem a little bit fluffy and not direct enough. But I think, and you probably know this, like many healthcare professionals or physicians that struggle with this disease, you telling them to go may actually push them the other way. It comes back to what I said before. Is there a safe place? Is there a safe person, a safe group that I can come and share my struggles with? And I volunteer for this organization called Lawyers Concern for Lawyers that is kind of like a professional health program for attorneys. They do it better than we do. They have a really robust system of support with the ultimate goal of getting people back to work and getting them healthy. Also protecting their reputation and their anonymity, like with the medical board specifically, or frequently professional health programs, we still are using shame as kind of a weapon to get people to do what we want. My experience with shame is it doesn't work very well. Bad things happen when you shame people. I mean, you can always point to examples of, hey, it worked for Joe or Laura, or there are examples. I think shame is deadly and shame is is stigma and shame. In my article, I talked about weaponizing it and I think they are used as weapons of control and we've done it forever. That's just kind of been our thing. So how do we get away from that is creating environments where people can be honest. They can be their true selves without being judged, without being shamed, without these horrendous professional consequences. And I'm not talking about somebody who's doing something extreme and harming patients. That's one end of the spectrum. I'm just talking about somebody who's struggling. We have in Florida something called Physicians Resource Network. It's very similar to what you're talking about. There are two elements in my mind. Yes, it's an extremely good organization, unless it's something incredibly extreme. They will do whatever they can to protect your license and make sure that you're okay. But it takes that initial step of the impaired doctor, they don't like to use the word impaired, giving a call to PRN and saying, I need help. One of the things also that I find very helpful when people come to me, if it is at all possible, is to get their spouse in. Because then I get the other side of the story. 
but they also get the sense that they're not alone. And that's Al-Anon in so many ways. For people to realize that if they go through this, it may feel like you're alone at times, but if you're blessed and have people like you, love you, it's a bridge that's there for you. What you're saying is ever so important, especially early on, because as you said, that when your wife came up to you and said, I don't know you, there is usually that story somewhere in every relationship. We used to talk about how do you know if so-and-so is getting better from the antidepressant? Well, don't ask the person because they'll say no. Ask the kids. Daddy wasn't as irritable or he ate all his food or the wife will say he wasn't kicking in the bed as much or whatever. That's the data points. And so not to be alone in this process, if it's at all possible. It's a family affair to, to use yeah. the phrase. No, that, that's a critical point because it really is, and people use this phrase, but it really is about connection. And that was my experience. Connection with myself, my true self, but also connection with my family with the community. I would say that the strength of my recovery is proportional to the quality of those connections, not just around me, but with myself, with my true self. And, and it does come down to being honest. You know, it's kind of a cliche, and, but I think it really does come down to being honest with ourselves and with those around us. And I'm radically honest, as you probably ascertained from the article, right? And that's what I do. And what I've found is that I'm healthier for it, being open and honest and transparent about myself and how I'm feeling and how I view the world and, and everything else. And that's my recovery. And it is a process of change and growth. It just seems that the more honest I am, the better things get. Even the legal system, and this was in one of the articles you wrote, that the judge told you, says, you're a doctor, you should know better, right? Right. He, he said, I hope this serves in some way as a cautionary tale to people in similar situations. How are these type of shameful comments not going to get us where we need to get to? Speaking about like my specific situation, I had been in recovery a year and a half. I had started an addiction medicine fellowship. I definitely did some things I shouldn't have done, mistakes. But my whole thing is, why should I lose my career and license for that? And the DA's kind of response, and this is what I had heard from my lawyer over and over, is you're a doctor, you should have known better. You're a doctor, you should have known better. Addiction doesn't work that way. And if intelligent people, doctors, lawyers, other professionals knew better, they would never have problems with substance use disorders. You know, we suffer at a higher rate than the rest of the population. It's just not an effective strategy. And I was lucky enough to not go to jail, but plenty of physicians have gone to jail. Putting somebody in a cage that struggles with this disease, I always say this is a disease of isolation and disconnection. So isolating and disconnecting people is not the solution. And I'm not saying people should not be accountable for their actions. They absolutely should. That strategy doesn't work. And in some twisted way, my arrest and kind of the public shaming around it was helpful, but it in some ways put me at an advantage because today I speak openly and honestly. The worst was already put out there in a very sensationalistic way. And so for me, I'm like, there's no downside, right? There's absolutely no hiding. I could have chosen to crawl into a hole and died and started to use drugs. I chose the opposite way, kind of radical, extreme authenticity and honesty. I kind of feel like it's my responsibility to help make the system better for all of us can by sharing my experience and my story. Absolutely. I have a question. One of the bigger discussions that we have is the use of Suboxone and 
in methadone. And I know doctors who got their Suboxone licenses because one person said to me, you make a lot of money and you're helping to treat the drug problem. I thought that was a little simplistic. Because you are a physician and because you've been through what you have, what role should we assign to the use of these medications in the treatment of chronic opioid use or the naltrexone for the, for the alcoholic or, or whatever? There's been a lot of discussion about that. And I don't know if all, but in Pennsylvania, you cannot be on buprenorphine or methadone and have an active license in practice. So with buprenorphine, partial agonists, we know, right, that that reduces morbidity and mortality by over 50% in people that take it that have opioid use disorder. Does it impair judgment any more than, say, somebody who's taking a benzodiazepine or Ambien at night for sleep or gabapentin for pain? I don't know. It doesn't seem so. I'm not sure why. I mean, doctors are human. Doctors suffer from opioid use disorder. Why shouldn't we be treating them with the same medications and therapeutic strategies that we do for the rest of the population? I don't know. I think Nora Volko is doing some research on that at the National Institute of Drug Abuse. I think we need more information, but I, my gut tells me no that physicians, and, and I have a friend who's a nurse who had started to take it, who was like three years into his professional program, and they kicked him out of the program. And I don't think that should happen. I think we need to give people some support. I need to think we need to rally around them. I don't think we should be kicking people out of these professional programs. I think career and, and purpose is a critical piece of recovery. And when you take somebody's purpose, like you think about physicians that have lost their licenses that have killed themselves or are homeless now. And it's interesting. I've received a ton of emails and messages around my article, and some have been from physicians around the country with really painful story of struggle and a few of them with opioid use disorder that were stable on a medication like Suboxone that were booted out of their programs and lost their job and are homeless and suicidal and depressed. And I, like, I just don't think that should happen. I, I think if you can prove without a doubt that yes, it impairs judgment and decision-making, okay, that's a different discussion. I don't think we've done that. And I think there's a lot of other things that physicians do, including, you know, the marijuana conversation. Many physicians are smoking it and not being tested. And I'm not advocating for widespread testing because I think if you tested every physician that's practicing in this country, you'd probably lose 20 or 30% of them because they're taking medications not the way they're supposed to, or they're smoking a little weed. Yeah. Where do we draw the line? What you just said, however, so captures it because doctors are human beings too. If we can just use that, boy, that gives it a different perspective. My entire philosophy is we are human. You know, we're no better. We're no worse. We're human. And let's just treat each other as human beings. To go back to what Brent was talking about, his repeated use of the word shame. There's no shame in being a human being with human emotions and human stresses. And we need help to tighten the ship when we need to a encouraging message to anybody who might be listening to this is thinking, oh, you know what? That's me a little bit. Oh, oh, yeah. My wife has said that about me. Tying that in with the MAT and the processes that actually do work for people with opioid uses. So as contemporary open-minded docs, a lot of us say, okay, this is a disease, not moral failing, right? Yet ultimately, in a lot of settings, it seems an individual who has these problems, has a diagnosis, actually needs to have somewhat of a moral turnaround, a moral buy-in 
in order to really succeed in the recovery process. How do we dissect that out, the difference between, no, it's not a moral failing, but you need to realign your moral perspective to ever have success in overcoming this? It's a brain disease, so uh, decision-making and judgment is not at its best, (laughs) right? So is it a, a moral thing, or is it that the way our brain is perceiving the world, the way it's reacting to the world, like you're making flawed decisions that in our society may be considered amoral? but it's part of the d- disease. And so I think if, like if you address the things underlying the disease, and Abby probably knows this as a psychiatrist, right? Like, you know, the trauma, pain, the shopping list of things that could be fueling that disease, and then you stop using the substances, things get better, right? And that kind of comes from that. We say it's not a moral failing, but most of our strategies and the way we deal with it, they act like it is, right? I don't know if I'm answering your question, but it's like, we have to change that. And I think a big part of it, and I touched on this in the article, if you're using illegal drugs, you're a criminal. And if you're a criminal, you are on the margins of society and you're a bad person and you're dangerous and you can't be trusted. That's a challenge too, right? You know, there's a lot of anti-stigma campaigns that are based on like these storytelling and messaging, which I think is important, but that may have worked for HIV or you know, some other issues. But now we're talking about substance use disorder, which is, you know, in a lot of cases, it's criminalized depending on what you're using. So that's kind of the wrinkle too, right? And I think like we say that you're a physician, you're taking care of somebody and they're telling you they're using heroin, which is illegal. And immediately the defense is up. So how do you engage with somebody like that? Because your assumptions, and I did this as a clinician, is that this person's a risk on multiple levels. What I say to them, what I prescribe to them, do I want them in my practice? And this is somebody with a disease and it's not a moral failing. And we keep saying that. We also say we can't arrest our way out of it but we continue to arrest people. The vast majority of drug charges are for possession in this country. Many of those people are struggling. Some aren't though. Some aren't. Some are just using substances, which serve a purpose. We don't usually ask what that purpose is. And drugs do serve a purpose for people. And until we understand that, it's very hard to manage the disease if somebody is in fact struggling with it. Absolutely. No, until I understood that, there was no way out, but I developed a real deep understanding of what I was doing, why I was doing it, what purpose it was serving, and then had great therapists and people around me to give me new tools and strategies and ideas of how to live and like work with this. And now I don't think about that. That's not how I deal with the world and life today. So I think I've gone off on a huge tangent and I apologize. Which is all very important. I'm curious, you you mentioned your reaction, as is many physicians and ancillary healthcare people's reactions when a patient says, yeah, I'm on methadone or I'm doing this and that. We have a gut reaction to what we think of them. At the times when you were engaging in some of this substance misuse, and a patient came in who was doing the same thing, what thoughts were going through your mind? Because I was doing anesthesia frequently, you know, somebody would come in with an abscess and it would be the same person. I I would just be like, oh, this is such a pain. Like, or it's on the weekend, Saturday, and we have to drain this, do an IND on something. I wouldn't say I was harsh, but I definitely wasn't that warm and friendly. And I was struggling myself at the same time, which is really kind of interesting. I don't think I was nearly as compassionate as I should have been or could have been to people like that. And there's also a hierarchy because I wasn't using opioids 
and I wasn't injecting drugs. So in some ways I thought I was better, which is insane. It's just, that's not true at all. There is no hierarchy. And we do, even in recovery, the alcoholics here and, oh, okay, you're using a little cocaine, you're here. But if you're injecting methamphetamine or heroin, you are dehumanized and put on the lowest level. And even 12-step fellowships, there's a lot of stigma and discrimination against people that are on MAT or methadone. Well, that's not real recovery. It's BS, <laughs> right? It's just, we draw these lines and we look at it as binary. It's like all or none. Well, you're absent. And even in, in just the general recovery community, like it's, it's all or none. You're either abstinent and you're in recovery or you're not. And today, when we put those barriers up, the drug supply is horribly contaminated. There's fentanyl everywhere. There's car fentanyl everywhere. Every time we put a wall up or we alienate or isolate somebody who's looking for recovery, who may not be doing what we want, that's potentially a death sentence. Let, let me ask you, what do you see in your future? What do you see in the future of the whole system here? I think a lot of amazing things are happening. I think the pandemic has pulled the curtain back on how many challenges we have. Things weren't good before, but I think the healthcare systems are starting to look at stigma. They're starting to look at engaging with people that struggle with substance use disorders in a better way. I think it's going to take a lot of time. I think the criminal justice system's changing. I think the insurance industry is another one where we have to really... Um, you know, work on because there isn't parity when it comes to mental health and substance use disorder. And that like is something that's critical that needs to happen. Things about the distribution about our medications, like the X waiver, I think potentially that will go away, which I think will, um, you know, improve, expand access to medication assisted treatment. But I think it's much more than that, because a lot of health systems are like, oh, we're getting all our pr practitioners wavered. But we know most people that are wavered don't even use the waiver because they don't want to talk to this population. They don't want to deal with this population. So I think it's slowly changing. I think harm reduction is a huge area that we need to invest more in. I'm not talking the extremes of safe supply and overdose prevention sites, but I'm talking little things about in meeting people where they're at, empowering them to make decisions for their life, expanding naloxone distribution, like uh, expanding MAT, basically protecting life because we know most people don't engage in treatment. If the last survey from the National Survey on Drug User Health, I think less than 10% of people engage in treatment and we need better treatment and we need more treatment, many strategies to protect people's health until they hopefully decide to get into recovery or if they don't, to protect them wherever they're at and whatever they're doing. And I think that's kind of a missing piece to this puzzle that we don't talk enough about. Basically, I'm saying everybody's got to chip in. This is a complex, multifaceted problem and we all kind of need to do a little bit to really make a change. And, and with what's going on with the pandemic, overdose rates are, and you've probably seen the recent data from the CDC, 81,000 some deaths, which is the largest in history. And, and some studies now are saying it could be 90,000 plus by the end of the year, which is astronomical. I think there's a lot to do. And I think the healthcare systems, I think I think we need to open our mind and kind of explore some new strategies. I don't really understand why our health systems aren't getting more involved in harm reduction. I always ask, I'm on this committee at the University of Pennsylvania, which is doing some amazing work in this area. 
They're expanding now Oxone Access, MAT. They've got some amazing providers doing addiction medicine. But I always ask the question, so what do we do for people that come into the ER and they don't want what we have? They don't want our naloxone. They're not interested in getting started on MAT. They don't want to go to treatment. What are we doing? Are we giving them safe supplies? Are we teaching them how to inject safely? Are we providing them with resources to get help? And that may sound outlandish. I think it is about caring and protecting for people, which we're supposed to do as physicians, right? I mean, as healthcare professionals, as healthcare systems. And so, yeah, it's a challenge. (laughs) It's a challenge on many levels. Dr. Sean Fogler, thank you so much for this poignant, personal, important discussion on this very complicated issue. Thank you for having me.